Her name is Mrs. Marshall, Margaret Marshall. She's a neighbor of ours, but I don't call her Margaret Marshall. I call her Mrs. Marshall because she's old enough to be my mother, okay? She's married to Cecil Marshall. I never call him Cecil Marshall either. C Cecil Marshall is old enough to be my dad. He passed away just a couple years ago. Um, when he graduated to heaven, in fact, I got to see him right before he passed. He was at Sage Point, and I stopped by to see him, pray for him, love on him for a bit. He used to sit right over there. And if you, even if you didn't know him, you knew who he was because the guy always dressed like it was Easter Sunday. Um, this black couple, this is important to get this, it's a black couple, and, I, and, and, and she's a school teacher, became a school board member of the public school system here. He was a school teacher who was actually an ordained minister, became a school teacher, became a school administrator, was an administrator in the Charles County system. But it didn't matter if he was at uh, the school on a Tuesday morning or a ball game basketball game on a Friday night or in church on Sunday morning he always looked his Easter best he always had tie with a little cufflink, uh, cufflinks and then a little tie tack that all matched you know what I'm talking about this guy's styling you know he always looked always looked great well it was between Christmas and New Year's we had some our kids were in and we had laid around the house and eaten and watched you know shows and then played table games and I said, I got to get out of here and go do something. So I, I took off for a hike. One of my daughters went with me, and we just went down the road, and off we went. And on our way back, we ran into Mrs. Marshall, who was in her driveway, because she lives down the street from us. She was in her driveway getting her mail, and I said, hey, happy holidays to you. It's not really Christmas, not really New Year's, kind of in between. We started to talk, and our, our talk lasted for about 30 minutes, and it was mostly her. And I tell you that because, because Mrs. Marshall... Uh, grew up on the eastern seaboard uh, you have to remember she's in her mid 80s and when she was a, a kid her parents wanted her to go to college expected her to go to college and so they took her to all the historic black colleges along the eastern seaboard and then she promptly enrolled at an all white school <laughs> and her parents said do you know what you're doing she said I, it never occurred to me she said it never occurred to me that they wouldn't want me isn't that cool? And she went there and graduated and became a school teacher. She met Mr. Marshall and they married and had their children. And then she started teaching school at an elementary school in Pennsylvania. The superintendent who hired her walked her into her classroom and said, this is your classroom. And, and it was in an, a nearly all-white school. And the principal walked in and stood at the door and said to Mrs. Marshall, I told the superintendent I didn't want a black teacher. And she said, and good morning to you too. <laughs> and she won his heart over that year. And the next year he, he hired four black teachers as the school was becoming more and more integrated. And you have to remember, this was 60 years ago. This was a long time ago. She went on to do that kind of work among agencies, social agencies, and businesses, and schools, and landed on the school board here locally, and helped us through many of our challenges. And then she looked at my young daughter, who is in education, and said, all my life I've been integrating schools and businesses and organizations, and it never occurred to me that they didn't want me. 
And, and if you met her, she's just the most pleasant. And if you met Mr. Marshall, Mr. Marshall could diffuse a fight in the hallway by going, boys, I wouldn't do that. I just wouldn't do that. It's going to get you in trouble, and it's going to cost me a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and so he, he, would, he would stop fights just by walking in the middle of them and say, hey, you might want to think about that. He was just the kindest guy. He didn't, he didn't ever get ignited. I never saw him get ignited, and he had every reason to be because he was in a, a high school environment. And yet they were agents in a wonderful time in, and doing wonderful things. And now at the twilight of her life, having just laid to rest her hubby of 50 years and more, now she's looking back and saying to my young daughter, you know, all my life I've been integrating places and it has really been a blessing. That's been my mark. And then she looked at her. It was almost quiet as we stood in the driveway. It was almost a holy moment. It's almost, she didn't say it, but almost as if to say, and, and now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. I told, uh, I told Mrs. Marshall, I said, I'll be using this in a sermon soon. <laughs> and she said, that sounds like something Cecil would say. God spins the universe into motion. The earth rotates, the planets are in place, and the Lord seems to keep it all together, and then and one day he decides he wants you, you to show up, and you do. Out of all the things that are happening, flowers are budding, trees are coming, mountains are roaring, oceans are coming, storms are, are passing through, and in the midst of that, he says, I, we need a Frank or Alice. And so he puts you on the earth, and God says, we need a Wilma, or a Willie, a Mary, a Marcus, and then you show up, and you might even be a surprise to your parents, but you're not a surprise to God. And the biggest question is, why am I here? Not only where am I going, my faith in Jesus will tell me where I'm going, but why am I here? Why didn't Jesus just take me home the day I trusted him? So why did he leave me here? And so what will be my impact? What will be my influence? And why did God make us just the way we are? And if you go through studies, you're going to find something that's crazy great. Studies that are done on babies that have to fight their way through birth. They end up being fighters. They're underweight. And we were just talking with this with someone right at the start of church. One of our kids just had to be a fighter just to survive. And she's, that's gotten her by in life. It's made, her, it's made her make the steps forward she needs to make, and she'll be a difference maker. Um, and size doesn't seem to always matter because I've been around big guys who are cuddly, and I've been around small guys who are tenacious. And temperament goes into it, personality. Birth order, I think, plays a part, too, because if you're in the middle, child tend to be a better negotiator. Why? You're not big enough to beat up your older brother, but you can't beat up your younger sister. You'll get in trouble. So you have to find a way to negotiate. And all of that that makes up your temperament, even the birth order, your abilities, your experiences, your good experiences and your bad experiences, they all come together in a kind of a culminative grade as if it were something that God downloads into your life to bring you to this point and it brings you this question of what will be your absolute legacy what will be your mark because you were made by God and you're made for God and the day you understand why you were made for God might be next to your salvation day might be your next best day you're here on earth 
You are here not just to take up space, but you're here, and you may not even realize it, like Mrs. Marshall didn't even know exactly what her impact would be until she's looking in the rearview mirror of her life. You have to get to the right place and be the right person and the godly person to be the, the person that God has this destiny for you. And I know the word destiny can be abused a lot, but don't take it for any more. But God has a place he wants you to be to have the impact he needs you to have. I'm reminded of the guy who said, um, when I was young, I was, just, I was dying to finish high school so I could go to college. And then when I got to college, I was dying to get out of college so I could start my career. And when I started my career, I was dying to fall in love so I could marry and have a family. And when I got married and had a family, I was dying to see my children turn 18 so they would leave. <laughs> and then I was, I was excelling in my career so I, I, was, I, was, I was just dying to, sit, to excel in my career so I could retire. And then the guy says, and now I'm, I'm just dying. I'm just dying. But God has so much more. So much more. Um, and, and Esther, the passage we're in today is kind of a turning point passage. We're in chapters 3 and 4 where, where Esther will be challenged with this when Mordecai will say to, to Esther, you know, Esther, this could be the reason you're here. This could be the reason you were elevated. This could be the reason you made um, the beauty contest. Could be the reason you became part of the royal family is because of such a time as this. This is why you're here. This is your divine appointment. This is your destiny. And the influence that you all have, you may not see coming, but everything about your training and about your experiences will all contribute to it. And I would just, I'd just like to suggest that you may not even realize what that is until you're ready to hand it to the next generation. So by way of introduction, let me just tell you the story of Esther. Esther lives hundreds of years before Jesus comes. Israel's had a great uh, uh, set of kings, and then the, then the kingdom falls apart. The, God's people get taken into exile several hundred miles away. Esther is born maybe a few hundred miles east of the Holy Land. She's never been to her homeland. Her parents and her grandparents were slaves in the foreign land, in a land that was called Babylon. Then in this, by this time, it's called Persia, the Persian Empire. But when she grows up, she doesn't even have memory of her parents because her parents have died. So she's an orphan, and so she gets cared for by her cousin Mordecai. But her cousin Mordecai is that much older than her. He's old enough to be her dad. Scholars say at least 15 years, maybe 20 years older. So what do you call a cousin who adopts you? Because that's what he did. He adopts her as his daughter. Do you call him cuz dad? Or what do you call him? And the Torah, the uh, scholars say that they, they called him Uncle Mordecai. And you have uncles and aunts, just like I do, who aren't really uncles and aunts. Um, but that's what you call them. You call them, I had Uncle Earl and Aunt Lorene. They weren't really my uncle, but I, well, I wasn't allowed as a kid to call them by their first name, but I didn't know their last name. I was a little kid. So they were Uncle Earl and Aunt Lorene. You probably had the same thing. And she's got an Uncle Mordecai. He adopts her, and his job is just to help her grow up and defend her. And he is all over trying to be a protector because that's what big brothers, that's what cousins do. Now, all the time they're living in Persia, 
There are caravans going back to the promised land, back to the Holy Land. And as they march back, they're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding the walls, they're rebuilding the temple, they're rebuilding the economy, the defense mechanisms, a whole bit. And most of all, their dignity and then their faith in God. But for whatever reason, Esther's family doesn't choose to go back. Now, they may not go back because they're tied into a business or because they have indebtedness or because they're not allowed to go back. They have responsibility. They don't want to go back. It sounds like too much work. But why go back to a city that's full of rubble? Why would we do that? Or it may just be fear, but nevertheless, they just stay back. And when they stay back, it's as if everybody who's godly goes and everybody who's not godly is as if God isn't even involved in their story. And maybe you, you've had moments or days like that in your life. You wonder, where is God? It seems like all the godly people got to move on, and I'm left behind in Persia, as it were. The king of that time, and the word for king in the, the biblical term here in that era is called Ahasuerus. That's the word for king. His actual name is Xerxes. You'll see both of those are interchangeable. Xerxes is the king, and he's almighty. And he's all full of himself. He'll have a party that lasts six months. At the end of the six months, he says to his wife, hey, I want you to pray. She says, no, thank you. I don't want to do it. He says, you got to. You're the queen. She goes, stick it in your ear, Xerxes. And he says, you're gone. He dumps his wife and says, I never want to see her again. Creates a law that she can't come into his presence anymore. But after a, a year or two or three or four of this, he decides, I, I need a woman. I, I want a woman, and I, I can have any woman I want. So as all of his aides say, I tell you what, you have 127 provinces, kind of states. Let's do this. Let's gather them together, get the most beautiful from each. We'll have a beauty contest. We'll give it a year. They'll come in, get some beauty treatments. We'll give them the best. And you guessed it. Esther gets picked among that whole crew, and she becomes one of those several hundred women in the country that lands at the palace getting all the beauty treatments and when it's all said and done she gets picked to be the next queen all along Xerxes doesn't know she's actually Jewish he thinks she's Persian he thinks she's one of the people because she never says no record of her ever saying there's no inclination he has no reason to ever think that when it's all said and done this king decides I, I, this is a great way to live and and Esther says, yeah, I could, I could like living in the palace. And that's where we left off the story last week. Chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of high honor, uh, high, of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. Verse 2. The royal officials at the king's uh, gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down. He would not kneel down or pay him honor. Get this. Uh, Esther's now in the palace. King Xerxes says, I want a number two. It's going to be Haman. Haman is from this tribe, this group of people called the Agagites. And he wants everybody to bow down. And so people are bowing down and it's kind of what they did is part of the culture. And then the king says, let's make it a law. So he makes it a law, but Mordecai won't do it. Now, there's several things happening. One is Mordecai's breaking the law. Some think this is an issue of worship, but I, I don't know if it is or not, because Jews did bow down in Israel to, to kings. It, that was kind of a custom to show respect. And Mordecai may be saying, you're not my king. <laughs> I'm not bowing down to you. 
not my king, not my country. Okay? Could be just that way. Could be very disrespectful. We don't know. But I think, I think there's something more than what the text is saying in verses 1 and 2, unless you understand what's really happening in verses 1 and 2. We need some history on this. Because it says about Haman, he is a, an Agagite. Now, that just, that's no big deal to us. If I said to you in American history, oh, they're kind of like the Hatfields and the, what would you say, the McCoys. You see, you know that story, right? They were just disastrous to each other. They, I don't know if you knew it or not, but on the Kentucky-West Virginia line, there's a river, and these two families fought across that river, and one day one of the guys thought he could steal a pig. We don't know if it actually happened, but he, they went to war over that and started shooting each other. People died over a pig. Think how stupid that is. But see, we know that history. When, when Esther's chronicle here says, Haman is an Agagite, that's like saying, this is the Hatfields and McCoys. Because a few hundred years earlier, Saul was king. And when Saul was king, he was told by God to destroy the Agagites. And, and Saul went in and he went to battle and he won the battle, but he, he didn't kill them all and he, he plundered the land. He was supposed to destroy it all. And he decided, you know what, some of this is pretty good stuff. We're going to keep some of it. And so he thought he knew better than God. And the Agagites came back with vengeance to come after Saul. And, and God said, you're, you're bringing trouble on yourself. And Saul paid for it dearly. The whole nation of Israel paid for it dearly because they did not listen and they did not obey. And this became a long-standing feud, similar to us with the Hatfields and McCoys. And you don't even know how it actually got started. God's Word tells us how this one got started. And, and so, so Saul, who brings on this anger, then this generational anger carries with it. And, and it, by the way, just kind of a parenthetic here. Have you ever gone to deal with something but not thoroughly dealt with it? And then it comes back to haunt you later. You ever had this? Like, I'm going to fix that later. I'm going to get to that real soon. <laughs> right? You done that? I've got a blinker light on in my car. I need to get that fixed. And then when I get a ticket, I'm getting it fixed. All of a sudden, I have time in my schedule, right? You wished you had done that earlier, right? Yeah. Um, it's like plucking weeds. You ever plucked weeds but only plucked the tops? But you didn't get down to the root. You didn't get it all. That's what happened. And God knew par partial obedience is disobedience. And Haman is evidence of that, and Mordecai is going to pay for it. And the feeling goes both ways, because Mordecai hates Haman and his people, but the love goes both ways. Haman hates the Jews. Not just Mordecai, but he hates the Jews. Now, you have to get some greater context here, because God works through people, and he's chosen people, and the Jews are God's chosen people. And those of us who trust Jesus, the Savior from heaven, we become God's chosen as well. He gives favor to his followers. History tells us this over and over again. So guess what Satan loves to do? He loves to hate on the people who try to follow the Lord. And there's a spiritual element happening here, kind of a, an invisible one that's happening at the same time. Satan loves to discredit and destroy not only the Jews, but the Christians in general. So the Jews, uh, to this day, still face, and you can go back through history, there'll be, 
there'll be wines of it. There'll just be stories and chronicles of it, of annihilation, of persecution, of abuse, and of slavery. Jews have had this all throughout their history. And I'm going, and these are God's chosen people. These are the good ones. And, and God allows that to happen to them. And the reason Satan does this to God's chosen people is because if he can stop God's chosen people, then he can stop the Savior and the King of the world. Do you get this? If he can stop the Savior and the King of the world, he stops mankind from being saved. So if he can just annihilate the Jews, he'd be happy. By the way, you know how I talked about sometimes it's in the rough, in the rough days of your life or the rough stuff of your life that makes you tougher, it makes you stronger? That's what's happened with Jews, even to today. In 1945, there were some survivors of the Holocaust, some young girls who had to work in the camps, but they did survive. And they were fighters, even as young girls. And show that. And down below are their granddaughters. Those are their granddaughters. You don't mess with them and not pay for it. And what I find interesting about these four young ladies down below, they seem like delighted to be walking with <laughs> whatever it is that equipment is they have on them. And, and if you were to go to Israel today, you'd find that is the culture. Do you know why? Because they've had to fight their entire existence. In 1948, when it became an actual country, they had to fight to get the dirt. And you know what their neighbors said? We will push you into the Mediterranean Sea. That's the kind of DNA that is in the Jewish people, okay? Okay, we can pull that off. Haman is the handler for Satan, and he just wants to get rid of all the Jews in Persia, and so he builds the case. Verse 8, Haman said to the King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the, the peoples of the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate, you understand what he's going to do? He's going to make them sound weird, somehow different. Oh, they, they, they don't seem to get along with other people, okay? Their customs are different from those of other people. And they do not obey the king's laws. They're lawbreakers. They are, they are just violent people. It is not in the king's best interest to even tolerate them. In other words, you could tolerate them, but don't, I wouldn't do that, king. If it pleases the king, he said, I got a remedy for this. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Let's just get rid of them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. By, by the way, 10,000, we don't know what that means. It was a lot of money. It was worth a, a, a ton to the treasury uh, for developing the king. And I think, quite frankly, the king was running a little low on cash. Why? Because he just had a six-month party. He's, he's got to build up the bank again. He says, I, I, have, I, I, I can reload the bank account if you want. Uh, understand this. So you go back and he's saying, these Jews are always a problem. They're, they're never going to be right. They don't get along with others. They don't play well with others. They stay to themselves. They have the different customs. They eat different foods. They have different music. It's never going to work. So don't even tolerate them. Let's get rid of them. He never asked the question, how'd they get here? Have you ever noticed that? Oh yeah, we drug them here against their will. Okay, they never asked that question. They just say, they're here, let's get rid of them. And so the king took his signet ring, verse 10, from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of 
Hamadath, Hamadath, that's enough, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And he says, verse 11, keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do what you want with the people. You can do what you please. In other words, he's saying, I, I, don't, want any, I don't want any payoff for doing you a favor, because that could be bad. And so I, I, don't, I, I don't want that on my record. You just keep your money, do what you want to do. Uh, it could be problematic. So verse 15, the couriers went out, and they spurred on the, by the king's command. They put out the edict to the citadel of Susa. And King Haman, I find this interesting, end of the chapter. The, and King and Haman sat down to drink. So they're not upset by this at all, but they're going to kill off a few million people. They sit down to eat and drink, but the city of Susa, they're bewildered. Why? Because the Jews know they're about to die. They are overwhelmed with grief. And so the city is in an uproar. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Uh, sackcloth is the symbol that I am in grief, so leave me alone. Oftentimes they put ashes on their face. They would put tattered clothing on. But he only went as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. That was illegal to do. They don't want anybody unhappy to go towards the king. And the gate was more like a gate system. It was a series of buildings. There was actually administrators with a high security there. He's not going to get any further. Okay? In every province in which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews. You get this. As the word spreads, because the people are in 127 provinces, as the word spreads to the different people groups of different languages. They all go into mourning. With fasting and weeping and wailing, many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They are desperate. And meanwhile, the king and his number two guy are living it up in the palace like nothing happened. See the difference? Keep reading, verse 4. Then Esther's uh, eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, that he was in great distress. And she sent clothes for him to put on instead of the sackcloth. But he would not accept them. She's saying, um, pull out of it, dude. If you lost a, a family member or something happened, get dressed because you can't go to your job. You can't come close to me. I can't connect with you if you don't put on these clothes. He goes, I'm not doing it. Verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned her to, uh, to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why? He, he is not responding. He's in dress code violation. This is the king's edict. And, 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 and Mordecai says to the assistant, you, you tell Esther we're all going to die. The king put out an edict. Haman hates me. And now that he's noticed me and he doesn't like me, he put out an edict not just for me to die, but for, but for all the Jews to die. And as the word hits the streets, you're going to find more bitterness, more weeping, more wailing. And, and, and then he says, Esther, you have to go talk to the king. You've got to talk him out of this. You, you, you're the only one who can do this. We can't even get in right now. And she replied, verse 10. Then she instructed him to Mordecai, and to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, 
there to be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares, and spares their lives. Um, stop, stop there. So if she says, if I walk in unannounced, they're going to kill me unless he raises his scepter and goes, hold off, don't kill her. Because they would see this as a violation. This is an honor. You only come if you're invited. And she says, and 30 days have gone by and I haven't been in front of the king. She's saying, we're not on the closest terms, you know. And if I do this, this could be the end of me. And when the words were reported to Mordecai, verse 12, he sent back his answer. Do you think because you're the king's household that you alone will escape? You think you're the only Jew that's going to get out? It's not going to happen, Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come. It'll come. We've, we've been through this before. We've been through slavery and attempted uh, assassinations and annihilation. They've been trying to do this to us our whole lives. All of our generations has been that way. <clears throat> he says, so we'll get delivered just about through your hand. He says, and you and your family, you'll die. You will perish. Don't you see, verse 14, who knows but what you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is why you're here, Esther. It's all coming crystal clear. This is why you're on earth. Esther, don't you see this has all happened up to, your, up to this point. This has all been a set up by God to get you at the right place at the right time so you would be God's voice and, and God's reason in that, in that palace. Esther, you're a beautiful girl, but you aren't that pretty. I mean, I look at all these other girls. I mean, you're a pretty girl, but there are hundreds of girls to choose from. Why would the king choose you? And you're smart. You have a nice personality. You're easy to get along with. But there's one chance in, in, in three or four or five hundred that you would get picked, and you got picked. This can only be of the Lord. So Esther, get with the program. Help a brother out. You, you got, we're going to die here. <clears throat> Some scholars say that the edict is put out and they, but, but to spread the word and to get people ready. What they're doing is they're giving it time, and they do that intentionally. And Haman, Haman's not an idiot. He is sneaky about this. He's giving it time, and he's going to, he's going to, he's going to embolden everybody, and then build the case to actually hate and suspect the Jews. So then when it strikes, it's not going to be a slow, easy thing. It's going to happen all in one day. So they, but they project this thing out a year. But what that does, too, is it, it gives the Jews a chance to say, okay, I think I'll, I'll go back to the Holy Land. I'll get out of here before I get killed. And they'll escape. And this is kind of the way, um, if you watched in, in World War II history, uh, like Schindler's List and others, this is the way they, they would escape. Get out of here now. Get out while I can. Because it's not going to go well. So, <clears throat> by the way, God gives, uh, this is just another side note. God gives us time to become the people we need to be and gives us time for his plan to unfold so we see this could only be of the Lord. So while... Esther's had time to grow into that job and to be trusted by the king, then time works in our, in our favor as well. We have time to change his mind. 
We have time to set the table. She's going to throw a banquet, help him change his mind, and take off the edict or be able to defend yourself. But in the meantime, Mordecai is saying, Esther, you have to step up. <clears throat> you see, God didn't place her at that position just so she could enjoy great foods, just so she could consume, just so she could live a life of ease. That's not why God had her there. He had her there for a high and holy calling. And, and let me just back away and say that about this. Americans have the same, uh, Christians in America have the same dilemma because we want the blessing to come our way, but if the blessing is the end point, it's all about us. I watched a parody of some worship music once, and it was, it was songs that were turned about us. How great we are, how great we are. <laughs> we're God's people. It's all about us, as if we're the end reason of God's love, and that's just not the case. Americans can be so short-sighted, and, and they're good Americans, but if we're selfish about this, we only pray for the blessing because we want the blessing to be the ultimate for us. And so we pray, bless me, bless me, bless me. And, and here's the deal. Yeah, and if you don't write anything else down, you weren't blessed just to be blessed. You are blessed to be a blessing. Do you see the difference? You aren't blessed as the end game. You are blessed to be a blessing. So don't pray for the blessing to come to you Pray that the blessing will come through you, okay? Write that one down. When you get that down, you'll understand that the blessings that you have are so you can turn and bless someone else. If you go back and read Jewish history, you'll find through you, Abraham, you will bless all of the nations. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you will bless the other people because of the blessing that you have received. It's not just about you. It's really about God's glory. And when we become blessing consumers, we just want more and more and more blessing. It stops and stunts us. So when you pray for the blessing, I don't want you to stop praying for the blessing, but when you pray for the blessing, pray that you'll receive the blessing so then you can give the blessing, so you can be the blessing. Let me zoom this story ahead a little bit. Esther will say, no, I can't do this, Mordecai. Mordecai says, then we're going to die. It's just that simple. Make out your will, because you, you're not going to escape. He's going to find out you're a Jew, and, and it's going to happen one day. And then down you'll go. And he did it to his other wife. He'll do it to you, too. He did it to earlier queen. He'll do it to you. So don't think you're going to escape. So Esther says, okay, Mordecai, I'm going to do this, but I'm telling you, you get everybody out there to pray for me. You get them to fast. That's serious prayer. He doesn't even use the word pray. He just says fast. You stop eating. And so they do for three days. And then she says to the king, hey, king, I need to talk to you. And he raises his scepter. He doesn't kill her. And I'm going to zoom you. We'll talk about this in the weeks ahead. Um, he says, come to me and she comes, what can I do for you? And she says, my people are about to die. He goes, whatever do you mean? She says, this edict you put out by the hand of Haman. And the king will devise a way to have the Jews defend themselves. And this will become the defense for the Jews in Persia. And it will save the, uh, the Jews in Persia, keep them from being annihilated, which allows us to have the Savior. 
It's called the Feast of Purim today. Even it's, it's even celebrated among Jews today. And <clears throat> when I zoom ahead like this, and I, I tell you then that the, the Jews then would be saved, he doesn't do this because, hey, uh, the king doesn't do this because he loves all the Jews. He, he doesn't even know who all the Jews are. He does this because he, I think he, he loves Esther. There's a, a sweet moment to this because he could have done away with Esther at that moment, right? He could have. But I believe God had softened his heart. And do you know why God softened his heart? Because she had been an exemplary kind of queen. And again, another lesson for you and me, to be the best in the position where you are because you don't know the favor you're going to need from God for those people down the road. So when you're an employee, be the best employee. Why? Because people will one day find out you're a Christ follower. And, and they want to know, that's what I want. That's the kind of life I want to live. Every day we're given an opportunity to be difference makers in life. And don't think of this as a, a burden. It's not. It's really an opportunity. And, I, I, and here's what I'm saying to you. You were made for making a difference. Let me just give you some kind of defining moments to this. Because we all want to have these, we all want to be making a difference, but we don't realize Esther's going to make a difference in the midst of a lot of personal pain. And that's where it begins. The defining moments include these. First, when we come face to face with the overwhelming challenges, we're going to have challenges that are beyond our control. We, we start with an impossible situation. It may be a financial crisis or a, a family curse. You just, your family just fights or is nasty or you have stuff from your past. You can't get around it and you have to go through it. And God has put you, planted you right there to face this. And, and, and you pray that God would find the remedy. And it might be in the midst of that pain that God will make the way and that'll become your legacy, what is absolutely your greatest weakness. But it's going to take some refinement, some pain. If we were to go, um, <clears throat> yesterday was like spring, wasn't it? Oh, my word. I have stuff popping in the yard already. This is not going to be good. Tulips are going to come up. But if, if come spring, if we were to go out to the, uh, the ocean, you go to the ocean and go to the beach, there's sand. And that sand is everywhere. And if you spend the day on the beach without even knowing it, you're going to bring some of it home. It'll be in your shoes and in your shorts and it'll be in your bag and in your sunglasses and it'll be in the trunk. And you'll have sand. And all that sand is free and it's cheap. And it's just, they're just, uh, it's just everywhere. Sand is everywhere. And if you stay there overnight, you're going to go to a hotel room, and there'll be sand in that hotel room. No matter how much they vacuum, you're going to find sand. And that sand is free. It's cheap. Take that same sand and put it in a bag and put it in a store. Now that bag of sand costs. Do you know why? Because it's been refined. Because it's been checked for size and shape, and, and it's been cleaned, washed, bagged, and someone had to get it to your door, so it's going to cost. And it's the refinement that really costs the money. So that sand on the beach is free, 
Sand in the bag costs three, four, five dollars. But take that same sand that would be in a bag and put it on paper with a little bit of glue and you would have a warehouse full of sandpaper and that'd be worth a lot of money, even more. So little bits of sand, even more refined, even more processed, and even more added uh, to other ingredients and you're gonna have a greater product yet. So there's sand on the beach that's free, sand that's in a bag that costs a little bit, and then sand that's sandpaper that costs a lot, lot more and it all has to do with refinement, but one more. Go to Silicon Valley and in a computer chip is a little bit of sand. And in that computer chip, that's some expensive sand, isn't it? And you know why? Because it's been tested and heated and cooled and processed. And all of that makes it all the more valuable. Understand this. There are some Christians that just kind of top out because they don't want the refinement process. And if you allow God to work in your life and use that refinement process, he'll make you even better of more valued use to him if you'll go through the pain. That's number one. Number two, when we see the hand of God in getting us to the place of influence, it, this is a defining moment. It's, it's when you realize, I don't deserve this. I do not deserve this. We realize we, we have it better than most, but, but I don't want to waste what God has given to me. Think about it. Esther could have just said, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm not going to rock a boat because I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my status. I don't want to lose the, the great staff I have. Why? Because I'm the queen. Others can go down. But when you realize God is in this, and I didn't get this quite by chance, and God only blesses us because of his goodness and his grace, and we realize that, it's not really about you or me anymore. It's, now it's about the glory of God shining through. And then we realize, the, the third one, even more so, we realize all of, the, all of life has been a preparation for this moment, for this path, for these decisions. We see the hand of God in all the activity leading up to now, and God has downloaded all those experiences all those successes and even all of those failures. Why? To get you ready for the defining moment, which will become your marking moment. And my word to you is don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So what are we learning from Esther? The challenges you're facing in life, you were made for them. Not to do them alone, but to lean in close to the Lord. And he promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I've made you overcomers. And, and you will win this if you walk with me. And I don't know what win actually looks like. I don't know what that looks like. I just know that ultimately, um, what the hymn writers say, the body they may kill, God's, God's truth abideth still. In other words, you kill me. This Apostle Paul said, so what? I go to heaven. <laughs> you can't beat me when I walk with the Lord. And you were made for this. So this week, what I want you to do is, I want you to ask yourself the question, uh, why am I here and what will be my legacy? And how am I partnering with God? Step by step, day by day. Let's bow together for prayer.
Gracious Father, what an incredible uh, piece in the story to realize your good hand, even in the troubled times. Even as I speak, Lord, um, and it could be, I'll stop in the prayer and say to you, you could have some remembrances of, of your successes and your failures, and God's going to use those for good if you'll give them to him. But Lord, we don't want to go to heaven just in a lofty kind of a way, on our own, without any sense of, of abrasion or of stress or of pain along the way. We want to be difference makers and influencers, and if that means for us, that we have some hard days we're made for that and we want to be your people who will follow you and do it joyfully and we won't worry Lord about our reputation or about our advancement or anything else because we know that to walk with you is really how we win we cannot lose and so we take to heart the blessing of Esther May we be the people who realize you have us here and now to make a measurable difference for good and for your glory. May we live to that end, we pray in Jesus' matchless name.